Hello everyone, this is Sherry Rice. Welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we bring you local guests on topics of interest to you and your family. Today we are continuing our discussion on how COVID-19 has impacted our community hospitals. My guest is Carla Adams, Chief Nursing Officer for Northern Nevada Medical Center, and a special guest is Elena. And Elena, um, I've tried at least four times to get your last name, and it's made us all laugh on the way I pronounce it, and I want to make sure it's pronounced right. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. My name is Elena Manatsakanyan. Yes. Thank you, Sherry, for having us. Yes, out of respect for me not... uh, Flubbing one more time on your name, uh, I thought, why not just ask Elena to say it the correct way instead of the way I have been messing it up for the last four takes. So thank you, Elena. Elena is the Director of Quality and Risk Management and Infection Control for Northern Nevada Medical Center. Welcome, Carla, and welcome, Elena. Thank you very much. And uh, Carla, this is our fourth in a series. We've covered quite a few topics. Um, Over the last four weeks in podcasts, you've been a great guest. We've discussed keeping your staff safe, your support of essential workers, physical and mental health. Uh, There isn't much that we haven't touched, Carla. Is there anything before we get into what Elaine and I are going to talk about that you wanted to add? No, it has been a sheer joy to uh, work with you and your audience, and I am just... um, Very honored that you chose Northern Nevada Medical Center to work with us. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm hoping that what we can do, um, Carla, is come back in a couple of months and just do a check-in, and maybe both you and Elena, because we know that this uh, pandemic is fast-moving and that there will always be something for us to talk about. You've been a great guest. Elena, um, let's sort of move over to your expertise. You're the Director of Infection, Infection Control in the hospital setting. Can you tell us what that job entails? Well, in a normal uh, times, you know, infection control usually is working with patients, with physicians, with uh, hospital staff to ensure, uh, you know, we can prevent infections in the hospital and control infections to make sure nobody gets any type of, um, you know, uh, communicable diseases while they're in the hospital which means setting up protocols, setting up programs uh, to prevent infections from spreading uh, from one person to another while those people are in the hospital. And so now that we have, um, of course, COVID-19, what, how has that increased your job? What has expanded your job? Well, it, it, it's a very interesting journey, actually. Last few months, we had to learn how to live in a new reality, you know, in a reality when not much known about this type of infections, infection, uh, you know, it's always difficult to, uh, you know, get the new infection and then make sure everybody's safe uh, while we're working with patients who have those infections, uh, you know, how to put together special precautions, how to educate everybody, all of those things we had to do in the last few months to ensure safety for our patients, visitors, our employees, our physicians, everybody around our patients. Well, let's go back to mid-March with um, when we first realized that the pandemic was coming to our community. Can you sort of take us through March, April, May, and sort of uh, a timeline of how it changed for you and and getting involved with the data that we're going to talk about in a few minutes? Mm-hmm. 
we first learned about this infection um, beginning of the year, mid-February probably. However, we did not see our first patients until beginning of March, uh, and, and that's when we had to put together all our protocols, all our uh, you know, areas, special areas where we could care for those patients. And if we're going to talk about statistics, you probably so in March we had about 143 patients. And then as we move forward to April, May, those numbers were increasing. And then in June, we saw this uh, new spike or new wave of the infections in uh, our community. But March was kind of a month when we prepared, when we uh, looked at what we have, what we need, and what we can do to uh, provide the best uh, possible quality of care and management for uh, patients who um, have COVID. Now, let me let me ask you, Lenny. In March, um, the data showed we had 143 cases in Washoe County, but we knew and we made assumptions. Uh, would that have been based off, off other states and how quickly the pandemic occurred there that we knew that it would rise past the 143? I think we knew it's going to come. We were just not sure how uh, how much we're going to be impacted. So there was no way that we would avoid it. Uh, I think it was more about like how bad we're going to be affected. I see. And um, and then preparing for it. And preparing for it, definitely. So when you look at the total cases uh, in the graphs that you sent to me, March 143, April 730, May 702. So in April and May, we stayed sort of steady on cases. Yes, that is correct. May, um, April, May, we've been pretty steady, and we think our initial spike was uh, mid-April. And then uh, as we continued to test people, testing was more available, and um, more asymptomatic people were actually tested starting uh, June that's when we saw uh, this uh, new wave or spike, if you will. Well, let me ask you, because, you know, um, certainly most of most of us get our uh, information on COVID from the news. Right. And certainly we've been hearing a lot about, and the federal government and President Trump has said, if you test more people, you have more positive. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that, that sort of um, analogy. Well, it is true. The more you test, the more you see, but that's a good thing. You kind of have a feel of, you know, how many cases you have in the community, how much we actually impacted, and not all of those that test positive have actually symptoms. So uh, it is good from surveillance perspective. It's good to know what is the spread of the infection actually in the community. So it, it, it's a good thing to test more people. Right, because there are people that are asymptomatic that are giving the virus to other people. Potentially they can, yes. So really when you when you look at it, wouldn't it be to our benefit here in Washoe County to try and test everyone? Well, th that is something uh, that's considered. However, it's not always feasible or realistic. What's interesting from the community standpoint to do uh, more surveillance, to test, but test from different perspectives, test from antibody uh, perspective, just to see how many people actually developed immunity, how many people, you know, um, were impacted by this infection. But not necessarily they have an acute infection, which is a great thing. But from surveillance perspective, uh, it is it is very interesting to do. Hmm. 
So this data that we're looking at, the March, April, May, and June numbers, what did this data mean to you, Elena? This data means that uh, we still have COVID in our community, first of all, right? The number of cases are definitely increasing. And I have to uh, say that a majority of these people are true symptomatic people, the ones that test positive, which is very important. Uh, we don't test as many asymptomatic people as we did in the beginning of June. Majority of these numbers that you see now in June and also July, those patients are truly symptomatic people. So not necessarily they have severe illness, but they have at least some kind of symptoms, mild symptoms even. Okay. So um, the infection is here. Uh, more testing is available, so people who have at least minimal symptoms, uh, they can get tested, uh, which is great. And then the other thing, you know, as we reopened uh, end of May, that's where you saw this, uh, you know, increase in number of the cases as well. People basically went back to their pre-COVID lives, right? They gathered together, uh, they get, uh, you know, they went back to work, um, they meet with each other, not always necessarily follow, you know, precautions that the CDC and county recommend. So it is, this is why we see this increase in cases. Because right. But my, my sense would be is that July numbers, which we don't have yet, are going to be much higher than June because we've been looking, uh, there's been quite a few days in July that we've hit a, a high each day of numbers of cases, right? Yes. I will tell you, as of uh, yesterday, we had over 2,000 cases for July already. Uh, and June we finalized with a little over uh, 1,000 cases. Yeah. So yeah. We've, we've almost doubled yes. in July. Um, so since we've almost doubled and then the governor went back to closing the bars, which I understand that's just for another week, and then he's going to put out another... Um, strategy uh, statewide for that. We can assume that the dramatic increase has been because people are not following the CDC guidelines. Is that an assumption you think that we can make? That is one of the reasons for sure. Mm -hmm. That is one of the reasons. So then the governor, uh, I don't know exactly the date, uh, Elena and Carla, that he said that we needed to wear masks indoors. I think it was a couple weeks ago. Would you anticipate that we would see the cases go down if people are following that? And when would, how long would it take to see the cases go down after that? Let's say he did it on July 15th. When would we be able to see that? So mandatory masking is very, very important. And I think one of the best things we've done in the last few weeks uh, is just to have that in place. And with that, hopefully our numbers should increase, uh, decrease. So it is always hard to say how long it's going to take to uh, decrease those numbers, but it's definitely one of the strategies that is proven to work. Now, the other thing we have to look from a holidays perspective, you know, we had uh, July 4th, we had, um, you know, uh, other holidays, and then from that time you always look uh, for potential increase in the next couple of weeks because there's an incubation period, right, 14 days, up to 14 days for this infection. So those are a uh, few things that we have to take into consideration when we think about how soon it's going to uh, take us to decrease those numbers. So let's talk about from a hospital perspective. When you're looking at these numbers, and then as you're saying, we need to take into consideration the holidays, 
uh, is that how you look at it from the hospital um, and Carla on staffing? Do you assume that after the holiday over in a couple weeks you'll see a surge and you staff appropriately? In some ways, yes. I mean, we make sure that we're ready to volume up after the holidays, and that's common, like after the, I'll, I'll say, the Christmas and New Year's holidays. We know January, we're right back in business. Same thing, 4th of July. You know, it, it might, census might drop just a little bit right around the 4th of July because people are taking off for holidays, physicians included. And then it's back to business, and we we just naturally staff up for that, that time frame. Yeah, so now the difference is that you're staffing up according to COVID numbers. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about the increase in testing, but to talk about that, I think we also have to talk about how long it's taking to get a test back. And I know that... Um, Personally, because I've had staff, as you know, at Access to Healthcare, we have about 130 staff, and uh, some of them have gone for tests, and it's taken them seven or eight days to get a test back. Now, do they quarantine? Yes, they do, but still, they're, uh, nobody knows whether they're positive or not. What impact is that having on things, Elena? Well, we we know that's the current reality. We really, um, you know, see that as as more people we test, the longer it's going to take to get the results back because uh, most of the time it's a state uh, public health lab that processes those specimens and they actually run over a thousand specimens every day. It is very unusual for you know uh, public health labs to run that many tests. So we're going to see that's happening. There are several co commercial labs that hospitals also utilize uh, to get their results faster. I'll tell you from hospital perspective, we get results much sooner than seven to eight days. Usually it's about two days turnaround time. And just because we understand how much state public health lab is impacted right now. Like I said, for hospital, it is much lower turnaround time. Well, with the, um, with the seven days, let's just say an average of seven days to get a test back, um, how does that skew this data? Well, it can skew, but what we've done, we're not looking at the data day to day. We like to look at those weekly, uh, and that way you get more accurate uh, numbers because it doesn't matter if we tested a person yesterday or today, it's still going to fall in the same week, and that's what we want to look at, a week-to-week -week, um, changes. That's how we track our data. Okay. Yeah, that, that's uh, been the most concerning thing with any of my staff who had a relative that tested positive that they live with, um, and then they go get tested, and it it just takes them quite a while to to get the test back. It just leaves people in a great deal of anxiety, and I understand. I mean, there's no one person's fault for this, uh, but it does seem it makes the system extremely cumbersome for everyone. That is true. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about contact tracing because that's a that's something that's new to most of the public to even hear that phrase contact tracing hasn't been in our vocabulary. Um, is that being done here in Washoe County? Uh, and if so, how are we doing it? Do you have any information on that? I will tell you, uh, truly, contact tracing is a new thing in our vocabulary. Um, however, um, I think it's important for public to know what that entails. 
uh, like think about it, we had four, uh, 670 positive cases in the last seven days, right, in the community. Contact tracing means that we have to assess every single person that's been in a contact with those 670 people. So uh, just from resource perspective, it is so difficult to do. And I think if every hospital, every healthcare facility will take some responsibility on that, we'll be able to help not only Washoe County Health Department, but also in general to our public. From hospital perspective, we actually connect with every single person who tested positive. We notify them. We make sure they notify people that they've been in contact with and uh, we ask them to actually contact health department and let them know that they are uh, being in contact, they've been in contact with somebody who tested positive. And that's the approach we took internally in our hospital just to, again, help out to public and to help health department to manage this because this is very resourceful, this is very time consuming and challenging subject actually. So let can we uh, define a little bit better, Elena, contact? Because, you know, if I go to a party and my Aunt Sue was there and I went over and said hi to her, is that a contact? Mm -hmm. So usually the person is, it is very important to know the day when person became symptomatic. And then from that day, we go back two days and we need to know everybody who's been in a contact with that person for those three days day of the symptom onset and two days prior. And then you want actually to connect with everybody uh, in those three days and make sure they're aware that they've been in contact with somebody who's positive. And those people are actually at risk of getting an infection. And they have to monitor for their symptoms for the next 14 days from the day of the last contact. So would that include if I'd gone to this party and said hi to Aunt Sue, but I'd had a mask on and she had a mask on uh, and we didn't touch each other, would she, we still ha would she be part of the contact if it was three days before my symptoms? Very good question, Sherry. So if both people are in mask, uh, your chances are actually pretty low to get that infection. The other piece is the, uh, you know, how long the contact was. CDC recommends to look at any prolonged contact, which means more than 10 minutes. Oh, okay. You've been with somebody in contact, and for 10 minutes, both parties did not have a mask on, your chances are pretty high to get infection. If you had mask on, you and the person you've been in contact with, your chances are kind of medium. But if you had like very brief contact, very brief interaction, and both had masks on, your chances are uh, very, very low. Okay, good. good. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that uh, that's been important. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Elena, and ask you, because right now, today, the controversy, the huge controversy in our area is whether the school should reopen. And um, Washoe County School District, and I just uh, finished a series with Katie Simon Holland on the board of the Washoe County School District. Um, and, of course, they all voted to do a hybrid uh, model where the elementary schools went back full-time in person, middle and high school did a hybrid of it. Uh, and now there's a big meeting actually today on the school district and it has become a huge controversy. With And I know that Kevin Dick, who's actually going to be on our podcast tomorrow, um, has said that he feels they shouldn't open right away. With the data that you're seeing and everything that's been going on this last month and a half, uh, what are your thoughts on opening the schools? 
uh, I, I agree with you. It's very controversial. It is very hard to say. I think children will be, um, I mean, as you know, children don't get, uh, you know, severe forms of infection. Biggest concern is uh, teachers and uh, actually uh, parents, right, because uh, pediatric uh, population uh, children are not affected as much. So it's still a concern. Now, the other question is, if we'll open, how long we will be able to keep schools open? Because there's still flu season coming up, still uh, many, many issues that can bring as well. So it is hard to say, uh, and I understand there's only a few weeks until this, you know, schools have to be opened or not opened. A decision has to be made as soon as possible, but this is really a very difficult question. I know Health Department uh, does not recommend opening schools at this time. Uh, but again, this um, we we really have to rely on the data and on uh, epidemiological situation in general um, in the community. Yeah, we keep going back and hearing we have to rely on the science, which is true, and not just on our feelings. Uh, feelings are not always fact. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, and I get it's a very difficult decision. It is, um, and I don't have, I have uh, grandchildren in the school district, um, and I know that I see my children wrestling with whether um, the kids should go back to school or not. So no matter what the school district does, I think the parent is still wrestling with a major decision. The third slide that you gave me is on the mortality rate, and I want to make sure that I've sort of uh, assess this right. It shows a mortality rate steady at 5.7 and 5.9 for April and May. But even with such a huge increase in cases in June, the mortality rate went down to 3.3. And uh, can you explain that to me? So um, probably, um, uh, here's what I'm going to tell you. So March, May, uh, March, April, and May, you know, we had less cases, however, more uh, patients uh, that, you know, died uh, due to COVID. And one of the reasons was related to, uh, you know, treatment protocols, how we managed those patients, how much we knew about that infection. As of today, we know a little more. Uh, we uh, know a little more about treatment, about management uh, procedures, and that gives us um, you know, an opportunity to see these numbers uh, decreasing a little bit. So July uh, may look a little different. However, it shouldn't get back to uh, close to 6% like we've seen in April and May. So numbers are truly decreasing in terms of mortality. But the other thing to look at is hospitalization rates. You know, um, we had uh, more hospitalizations in the beginning of COVID than we have now. And the ones that are hospitalized are not as severe as we've seen uh, two, three months ago. So this is another reason why mortalities are uh, lower than we've seen in, in the beginning of uh, this COVID uh, thing. Why do you think cases aren't as severe now? Why? Yeah. Well, part of the reason the mutation of the virus, and we can speculate here, you know, for a long time, but that's one of the reasons. The other thing is people are more aware. They go to medical uh, professionals, to healthcare providers much faster. And the sooner you get helped, the better chances for survival are. And then, um, in general, people know more about COVID than they knew in, in the beginning of March or April. Mm -hmm. And the faster you go see your uh, physician, your healthcare provider, the better chances you have. 
And again, treatment protocol changed dramatically from March to now. We know much more than we uh, knew um, in March, definitely. Do you think that it's um, increasingly important this year for people to get the flu shot this fall? Absolutely, yes. So whatever we can pre prevent, uh, it, it, it's better. It's going to serve us well. Uh, you know, at least we will know this person had flu vaccine or this person has pneumococcal vaccination. Those things will help us to filter through a little bit better. I mean, there's no vaccine that protects you 100%, right? You still can get uh, influenza. Mm -hmm. You still can get pneumonia related to uh, non-COVID-related pneumonia. But at least uh, those people won't have severe pneumonia, severe uh, complications of influenza, and that will help us to filter and, and understand at least these people have lower chances to have flu and maybe to look a little more towards COVID for those patients because symptoms are very similar, as you know. Right. Let me ask you something that I think many of us um, are curious about, Elena, and that is, what are the numbers that we're looking for to say that this is under control in our community? Mm -hmm. So there is a very scientific term. It's called reproductive number. So the reproductive number is the number of how many people one person can infect. And uh, when we started with COVID, the number was over two. Now we are closer to one, but it's still above one. To say that outbreak is under control, we want to see that number under one. It is, like I said, a little above still. So the moment when we'll see that number going a little lower, we can say that this outbreak is under control. We're still not there. We still have a way to go, but uh, we are uh, getting closer to that. Ex explain that to me a little bit more for we lay people reproductive number. Can you well, reproductive that? number means how many people one person can one sick person can infect. Ah. So in the beginning of the outbreak, we would assume that that number was a little over two. Right. Which means one person can infect at least two people. Okay. Huh. That way your numbers are doubling. Like with every new person that is uh, positive for COVID, we assume that that person can infect at least two. And what's a super spreader? Because we hear that in the news too. It is a very controversial term as well. So some people can infect actually uh, more than uh, you know one or two people. They can infect multiple people, and it will depend on their viral load, which means um, you know they have higher load of viruses than uh, you know average person has who's positive for COVID. So those are very scientific terms that we need to also consider when we talk about. Um, like a controlled outbreak or not controlled outbreak. So do you look do you look at the number um, or get that number say from somebody that has COVID and their husband didn't get it and their children didn't get it and that means that it's less than one? Well, this is something that I know health department monitors and CDC monitors uh, to make sure uh, again we get our numbers below one. But as of uh, last week, actually, our uh, that reproductive number was uh, about 1.1, which is already a good uh, trajectory. That's a good number to have. So we're not necessarily looking for a number of cases a day that we, because, of course, in the news it says 
record-breaking number of cases, 110 or whatever. Um, and then we think, well, gee, what do we have to get, number of cases do we have to get down for this to be under control? But what I'm hearing is that it's not necessarily the number of cases a day. It is both. It is both. You want to have that number lower, but at the same time, you want to have this reproductive, reproductive number lower as well, below one. That's what we want to know. That's what we want to see. Okay. So we know that COVID's not going away for a while. Um, certainly, we're hearing more and more about having a vaccine for it, but uh, even in the best of circumstances, we're probably at least six months out from that. What What are your main concerns over the next six months, Elena? Well, next six months going to be interesting because it will involve, obviously, flu season, right? Um, so as it approaches, we want to make sure public is aware of symptoms. Uh, by now, probably most of us, uh, we are well aware. However, it's important to understand that if you have symptoms, don't wait. Go to your uh, hospitals, nearest hospitals. Go to your primary care providers, to urgent care. Don't wait, okay? Mm -hmm. The sooner you can uh, see your uh, provider, the better. The other thing that, um, you know, public information is definitely key. The other thing is a personal protective equipment availability from hospital standpoint. We need to make sure we have everything available to protect our staff, to protect our first responders, to protect our um, employees, our physicians, because those are the ones who will be taking care of those patients. So it is really um, important to uh, make sure we have everything available to uh, care for those patients. Yeah, and Carla, um, I know we've talked a little bit about six months or nine months down the road uh, being able to space out your staff so they don't get burnt out. Yeah, we, we are definitely on heightened alert around staffing, trying to keep our staff well and trying to um, find ways to help them deal with stress stressors mm -hmm. uh, so that they are fit to come to work and uh, that we have a plentiful workforce. So uh, definitely, definitely on top radar. Well, thank you, Elena and Carla. I've, I've very much enjoyed this conversation. I know Jackie, who tapes it for me, um, has too. It's been very informative. We really appreciate it. Um, and Carla, I want to thank you again for all the podcasts you've done with us. I would love to come back to the two of you, if we could, in a couple of months and just do um, another podcast to get up to what's happening with the data. Uh, then we'd have July and maybe August. Would that be comfortable for you guys? That would be good. Oh, that's great. Today we've been talking about COVID-19. Um, we have talked about the impact on our local hospitals, uh, primarily Northern Nevada Medical Center, but today we've been talking about some of the data. My guests uh, have been Carla Adams, Chief Nursing Officer for Northern Nevada Medical Center, and our special guest today was Elena. And Elena, I'm going to let you say your last name again. Elena Manatsakanyan. Thank you. Director of Quality and Risk Management and Infection Control for Northern Nevada Medical Center. Thank you so much, ladies, and thank you to everybody for listening. Um, and you can get a list of our podcasts at accesstohealthcare.org uh, slash podcast. And everybody listening, please stay safe and please wear your mask.